staying in here uh, this morning to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to continue with our study in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew 21, beginning in verse uh, 33 uh, this morning. And I appreciate those who, uh, men who sang that song this morning, uh, Channels Only. It's not only for uh, a challenge to the, the mothers, but it's a challenge for all of us to be a blessing, a channel of blessing to uh, those around us, to be a blessing in our homes, uh, and to be a blessing wherever God uh, allows us to serve. Matthew chapter 21 this morning, we're going to be looking at the, the marvelous cornerstone, cornerstone, the marvelous cornerstone. The Bible often uses pictures and images to help us to uh, deal with truth. Old Testament prophets and wisdom writers uh, leave us with so many of these that uh, they've kind of weaved their, their way through the fabric of our thinking, if you, if you please, uh, and seeing the, the Lord as our shepherd, as our rock of refuge, as our hiding place, or even as the Lamb of God, that all helps us to understand uh, what God in Christ has done for us on our behalf. Uh, it talks about the implications of a relationship that we are to have with Him. Now, a number of the Psalms are called Messianic Psalms, in that they convey particular promises and truths regarding Jesus Christ as the Messiah. A mystery hid the interpretation of the, some of these particular psalms, especially with the images that were used until the fullness of time when the Messiah came down to this earth and was on the human scene. And that's where the New Testament writers help us to understand the meaning of the Messianic psalms as well as other prophetic material. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, all right? And so again, we find that, and if you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it a hundred times probably. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so we find that here the New Testament is going to give us some understanding concerning the Psalms that refer to the Messiah. Which brings us to Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. And the Messianic implications highlight the psalm as the psalmist rejoices in the goodness of God in salvation. It says there in Psalm 118, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then further we see the, in the context of also an often quoted verse, This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I certainly believe that that verse right there is a verse that we can apply to every day that God gives to us. That God allows us to see uh, another day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. But is that the real application or real interpretation of that verse? Uh, I find that in the context, uh, that's really not what that verse is talking about. 
Uh, we even have a chorus that we sometimes sing. And that's a good way to look at the day. Because the, door, the Lord does make each and every day. But the specific interpretation of that particular passage is the day of salvation. This is the day. The day of salvation. The day of the Messiah. And it has come about by the Lord's doing. So we have a cause then for rejoicing. Yet rather than rejoice, the religious, religious leaders of Jesus' day, who would have understood what God was doing through Christ, rejected Him. But even in that rejection, God's plan for reconciling a people to Himself was fulfilled. God's marvelous cornerstone secures those who believe, and it crushes those who reject Him. Man cannot remain neutral about Jesus Christ. And I wonder this morning, is your life built on Christ, the cornerstone? Notice here in our, first of all, the account that Jesus gives. Our Lord masterfully told stories, often in forms of parables, to express truth in a very vivid, understandable term. The parable is a good example of his style of preaching, you could say. And so we want to consider the simplicity of the story that Jesus told and some of the particular emphases that he made. Notice, first of all, his story was anchored in the Old Testament. It was anchored in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah often offered a memorable parable of the vineyard in the fifth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. Christ quoted the opening stanzas of this parable, but made a different application than the one that was found in the prophecy. His hearers would have recognized it from the start. We see in Isaiah chapter 5, and verse 1 and 2, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Now until we get to the end of the stanza, the words of Christ were almost verbatim. This is almost exactly what Jesus said here in Matthew chapter 21. In the case of Isaiah's parable, the vineyard represented the house of Israel and the choice vine Judah, according to verse 7. And the point of the parable was that God had made every provision for Israel to live as a people of God, having protected them and nurtured them through many years. And yet this nation produced wild grapes and therefore would meet the judgment of the Lord. Now, quite fittingly, Jesus used this parable to make further application beyond that of the book of Isaiah. So here we have in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 33, it says, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and led it out to the husbandman and went into a far country. Now, rather than the vineyard representing Israel here in the Lord's version, it's much larger. It re represents, you could say, God's kingdom. 
Israel had failed to see that they were not the kingdom of God, but they existed only by God's grace as a part of his kingdom rule. And instead of, as the vine growers, the religious leaders of Israel had been given a responsibility to care for the message of the kingdom, to make the sweet wine of God's truth for others to enjoy, and to find eternal blessing. But they took matters into their own hands. Notice verse 34 there in Matthew 21. And the time of the fruit drew near. He sent his servants to the husbandmen and that they might receive the fruits of it. Here the scene uh, would not have been unusual for this time period. The landowner made every preparation needed for his vineyard and customarily rented it out to farmers that would have taken care of the vineyard and give the landowner a portion of the harvest as rent payment for the vineyard. That's something that's not unusual today. People who own land will rent it out to a farmer who wants to plant crops and for for the privilege of planting crops on their land, they will receive payment as, as a portion, or the portion of the harvest as payment. But again, the vine growers took matters into their own hands here in verse 34. Notice verse 35. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. So refusing to pay the rent and resisting the landowner's claim to ownership over the vineyard, the vine growers become a group of rebels that beat and stone and kill the representatives of the landowner who come to collect what they had owned. And so in adapting something of Isaiah's application of the parable, Jesus points out that the Lord's servants, that is the prophets of Israel and Judah, came to these nations to hold them accountable before God, but they were mistreated. They were rejected. Now we think of the 5th century prophet Jeremiah, who received bitter treatment from religious and political leaders in Judah, even being left for dead in a muddy cistern. Though his prophecies sought to point people toward the obedience to the Lord and liberty through him, We also hear of Zechariah, who prophesied being the son of Jehoiada, the godly priest that elevated the young Joash to Judah's throne after the tyranny of Queen Athaliah. And after prophesying was murdered in order of Joash, at the order of Joash, who had turned away from the Lord. Israel and Judah resisted the merciful warnings of the prophets again and again and again, and they took matters into their own hands. But then we come back to Matthew chapter 21 here, and we look at verse 37, and it says, But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. Well, I believe the implication of this story is absolutely clear, don't you? You know, the son, capital S-O-N, came to Israel, and they were 
fulfilling this prophetic parable exactly as the Lord described. They had failed to hear the long line of prophets that God had sent. Now they were rejecting the word of the Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And more so, they would kill Jesus Christ, the Son, in hopes that they would conduct religion and the kingdom in their own way. So we see the Lord's lesson anchored here in the Old Testament. And by the way, if Jesus thought the Old Testament was important, so should we. We find the Lord drawing many examples and many lessons from Scripture uh, that they had. And there was no New Testament at the time that Jesus was teaching, so He was using the Old Testament. So His story is anchored in the Old Testament. But notice how it's emphasized in the New Testament. Emphasized in the New Testament. Jesus established some very strong areas of emphasis in the story. With God's purpose and design comes accountability. Jehovah God had provided for men to know His will, to live in a relationship with Him. In Isaiah's parable, it was the Lord who planted Israel and nurtured them in every way. And with the divine purpose came responsibility for Israel to worship and to obey Him. But they failed miserably, rebelling with such tenacity that they were determined to go their own way. And though the Lord had brought Israel back to their land and brought the Messiah to eternally deliver them, they again spurned God's favor or God's way in favor of their own. Similarly, as Jesus addresses the religious leaders in this, this section of Matthew, we find that he pinpoints their obstinate rebellion against God. It seems that the religious leaders who had already spurned the authority of Jesus Christ, if you remember our message from last week, we talked about Christ's authority from verses 23 through 32. And so they thought they could, do, uh, they could continue to reject Him with liberty. Yet none of us is free to interpret God's plans and purposes according to our own desires. Israel had every advantage in living according to God's purposes, but failed to follow the Lord. And through their selfishness, the very people who were promised a deliverer rejected the Messiah. Yet I believe in this parable we see the patience of the Lord. You know, the Lord is long-suffering, isn't He? He's patient. Not once, but many times He sent prophets to exhort, to plead with Israel to follow after the Lord. And we find mercy woven throughout the many warnings from the prophets. I wonder how many times has God warned you? How many times has God been patient with you? God is a patient God. Now the religious leaders, they fail to see this, this vineyard, this God's kingdom in this case. They fail to see that it belonged to His heir. The parable shows that even though clear evidence is demonstrated over and over and over again, Jesus Christ was the Messiah, God's Son, the religious leaders purposed to kill him. And that demonstrated their rejection of God's purpose and design. None of the religious leaders could ultimately thwart 
God's kingdom. The kingdom goes on and those rejected the Lord's kingship over their lives would face certainty of punishment. Even the religious leaders acknowledged this in Christ's question to them. Notice it in verse 40 and 41. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto thee or to those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. And so we find here secondly this morning, not only this account, but the amazement, the amazement that Jesus calls for. Having painted a word picture for the religious leaders that all that listen to his message, they, Jesus began to draw some conclusions and some piercing applications. He moved from Isaiah's prophecy to the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. And he used this to further drive home the meaning of this parable. And I want us to focus on the last phrase of verse 42. Notice that there in verse 42 of of Matthew uh, and uh, chapter 21. He said, Jesus said, Did ye ever read the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the uh, corner? This is the Lord's doing. Notice the last phrase, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is marvelous in our eyes. The present tense there implies it's not only marvelous once, but it's continually marvelous. It's continually marvelous. It's a continual, uh, constant amazement to all that understand what God has done in Christ on behalf of sinners. Marvelous, translated a word meaning wonder, amazement, or something that is an object of wonder. And here our Lord stands back and He looks at the work that God purposed before the foundation of the world. And Jesus Christ stands forever as the focal point of that work. And by the Lord's doing, it came about in such a way that is really baffling to the human senses to try to unravel the divine mind in salvation. It's amazing. I don't know about you, but I think it's amazing that God saved me. Now, we're all in two categories at this point. There are only two kinds of people on the earth today. You're either saved or you're lost. We're either one of those who reject Christ, the cornerstone, as the only way to God, or we are of those that are constantly filled with wonder and amazement at what God has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ. No neutrality can be found. You're either in one or the other. Men reject God's way either aggressively by opposing the gospel of grace or passively by attempting to ignore the gospel and pretend that it doesn't apply to them. But they're still in the lost category. And make no mistake about it, no one is neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ and His gospel. You can't say, well, I just don't have an opinion about it. You're either in one or the other. If you're not marveling in His gospel and rejoicing in it, then you must face the reality that you're in essence really rejecting it. Now let's consider the amazing realities found in the truth 
that to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the, reconciling the world unto himself, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And we're going to back our way into this verse and kind of unpack the riches that are here. But notice, look at this amazement that Jesus calls for. First of all, amazingly, God provided a way of reconciliation. Jesus questions whether or not these religious leaders in Israel have even read the Scriptures. Do you, have you not read? It's quite a dig aimed at the chief biblical scholars of Jesus' day. But they needed that stinging question, since at heart they had sought to put their own spin on God's Word. They have plenty of company in our day. We do not have to go far to find people spinning the Bible like it's a spiraling spiraling top, trying to make it shore up their own uh, thinking on life. A few years ago, CBS's 60 Minutes interviewed an actor by the name of Jim Carrey. If you're not familiar with him, you haven't missed anything, okay? And the headline was, Jim Carrey tells 60 Minutes, More God, Less Prozac. And in light of our text this morning, it's interesting to see what this character, this, uh, I mean actor, excuse me, I said character, um, this actor, Jim Carrey, had to say about his view of God. He discussed his problems with depression and the temporary assistance he found in Prozac and then said, You know, I had to get off at a certain point because I realized that, you know, everything is really okay. And having sworn off drugs and alcohol, the actor seemed to be making a strategic turn in his life, and then he invited the cameras and the interviewer to his private little lean-to on the hillside property in California. And he said, this is where I hang out with Buddha, Krishna, all those guys. Unveiling his own personal theology, he continued, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Christian. I'm whatever you want me to be. It all comes down to the same thing, he said. And in his thinking, all religions lead to the same God. Or should I say, God with a little g. So it matters not which one you choose, he said. Now we might say, well, at least the religious leaders here in Matthew 21 were not embracing the pluralism like Jim Carrey. That's true. They did not believe that every God was really the same God. But their basic understanding of God was much better than the actor's was, and yet they rejected God's revelation of Himself as a triune God. They rejected the incarnation. They of God becoming a man on our behalf. They rejected the redemptive way that God, through the cross of Christ, having only, they, they had only evil intentions in killing the Son of God through crucifixion. Well, but are we any better than these religious leaders? They had great light from God's Word, and they sinned greatly against that light. And yet consider that we too sin greatly against the light of God's word. Perhaps you're here this morning 
and you have heard the gospel clearly taught for many, many years, perhaps from the time of childhood, and the facts of the gospel have been undeniably set forth in terms of His divine and human natures in one person, and the sufficiency of His substitutionary death on the cross, followed by His triumphant resurrection, and those things are clear, but many today, I'm afraid, their lives live their lives as if these gospel facts do not exist. How many pursue their own pleasures and recoil at the any thought of restraint by God's law? How many do not want Him to rule over them, but they prefer to go their own way? Why would any sensible person say that God has no reason to even give such people the time of the day. Why should He even think about their eternal need of forgiveness? Why should God care about a relationship with them when they can do nothing for Him? And that's where our text helps us. Notice again the words here, In verse 42, the stone which the builders rejected, the same became the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We need need to be quite honest this morning. It's not just those that presently reject Christ and His gospel that God should have nothing to do with, but it's really every one of us that God should have nothing to do with. For enmity with God is bound up in our hearts to such an extent that we naturally resist Him and defy Him. And sometimes the things that we do show that we actually hate Him. And yet, this God has sent to us the cornerstone upon whom our lives can be built for eternity. This came about from the Lord. Grace, grace, grace. That's what this verse says. You could use that over and over and over and say, grace, grace, grace. That's what rings in this verse. Even though the religious leaders rejected Christ, even though the world stood together in defiant rebellion against the Creator, even though people today, people in churches, will not go God's way, we find it came about from the Lord to send His Son to us. And so we must declare, it is marvelous. It's amazing. It's amazing. Let me ask you, do you find it amazing that God provided the way of reconciliation to Himself on your behalf this morning? He cannot benefit from anything that we might attempt to do for Him. You can do all the good works and you can can be the best person, the most moral person, but God will not benefit one bit from that. But we can greatly benefit from His dying on Calvary's cross to pay our sin. He still gives us His kindness that we might be reconciled to Him through Christ. The amazement that Jesus calls for. Secondly, is amazingly, Jesus foretold His death and resurrection. Something else is tucked into this Old Testament quotation concerning Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It says, the 
stone which the builders rejected, the same became the head of the corner. When we think of the modern day builders laying a cornerstone, it generally, uh, we think about, you know, a cornerstone. Well, there's going to be a, a little box, maybe concrete, that uh, you put a little box into and you put some current newspapers in. You maybe put some documents that pertain to uh, the time that we live in. And that way, future generations can break it open and they can read all about what took place. I don't know if there's such a cornerstone on this building. It could be. That's usually what we think about when we think about a cornerstone. But the cornerstone was the key to the rest of the structure. The appropriate stone in size and shape would be placed strategically so that the rest of the building might take its alignment and form based on that cornerstone. The Maison Couturier in Nîmes, France, a 2,000-year-old Roman temple was constructed by huge stones. Pivotal uh, among them was the cornerstone. One stone of precise measurements and condition and shape upon which the rest of the building would stand and be formed. This uh, building still stands today. By the way, you didn't know I could speak French, did you? I know all kinds of French words. French fries, French toast, Pepe Le Pew. You know, I know French. But it's an amazing building there in France. It's all based on that cornerstone, though. And so with this picture, this metaphor, the biblical writers established that the kingdom of God was builded Upon or founded upon Jesus Christ. Every detail in its dimensions, its shape, its size and form relates directly to Christ. And without the cornerstone, the building has no value. Paul expressed this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth, groweth unto the holy temple in, God, in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Christ is the cornerstone to such a degree that the whole building, all the redeemed through the ages, are fitted and joined together a holy temple in the Lord. Peter picks up this uh, uh, thought, the same thought there in First um, Peter chapter two, verse four and five. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable. To God by Jesus Christ. We are living stones that are joined to Jesus Christ, the living stone. It follows in the next verse by declaring Christ as a precious cornerstone. Now, what is specifically implied in that, uh, what is specifically applied in that cornerstone? But we're not just built upon a person of Jesus Christ, as grand and wonderful as He is, and He was as God-man, 
He is the cornerstone rejected by men that is put to death on the cross and raised from the dead by the Father because He is our substitute before the wrath of God at the cross in the resurrection. And that is precisely what Jesus foretold here in pictorial language, metaphorical language, in this Old Testament quotation that He had done plainly here before the disciples. He understood what was meant by becoming the cornerstone. The cross and the resurrection awaited him, and that is marvelous in our eyes. Now there's a third thing that we see here, and that is the the amazingly religious men totally rejected Christ. The builders referred to the religious leaders, those that should have understood the Scriptures, Yet due to their spinning of God's word to create a religion of self-dependence in legalism, they rejected Jesus Christ. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. And how amazingly that these men, so moral, so bright, so studious, would reject God's Son. They scrutinized Christ. They saw His holy life and His miraculous works, and they witnessed His power, and yet they rejected Him. We need to learn a lesson here from these greatly mistaken men. They had in their minds that they, what they thought their Savior should be and look like and how He should treat them. Because they had so bent their minds and nurtured their hearts on a false understanding of Christ, they rejected Him. And we can fall prey to the same thing. Any one of us can have our own vision of Christ, our own vision of a Savior that has come through our own spin on the Bible. And we need to be careful in this area. Now, let's quickly go to the application that Jesus makes. Jesus applied His parable and Scripture reference in two very piercing ways. First of all, the kingdom belongs to the fruitful. In a striking statement to the religious leaders, He tells them in verse 43, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Rather than Matthew's common kingdom of heaven, here we have the kingdom of God used, and this is a synonymous term that encompasses our relationship to God through Christ as He rules our lives. And the religious leaders thought they had a lock on God's kingdom, but they insisted on doing religion their own way and left God's way out. And when Christ rules our life, His works He works in us and through us. Fruit will be produced. The fruit of godly character, new desires, new affections, love for the brethren, love for the righteous, hatred of sin, love for obedience, a heart to follow Christ, even if it means suffering. So the kingdom belongs to the fruitful. Secondly, the rejoicing Rejecting Christ brings inevitable consequences. On the other side of the story, there's a merciful warning. Verse 44. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, and whomsoever it shall fall it will grind him to powder. Two pictures presented here. In the first, we find someone who stumbles over this stone, and the process is broken and bruised. The stone was not moving, yet that person stumbled and it fell, they fell over it. We find the facts of Jesus Christ as God and man, as Redeemer and Lord. Facts clear and simple. 
stated in God's Word, they stand immovable like a giant stone. And yet I'm afraid too many people today stumble over the facts of Christ's deity and His humanity or the necessity of His death or even His resurrection. We can talk about Jesus Christ as a good man, a great prophet, a servant-hearted person that did wonderful, helpful deeds, and no one will be offended at that. But talk about the facts concerning Christ and His death on Calvary's cross for their sin. Boy, watch the sparks begin to fly. Jesus said that those who find offensive at the, are offense at the facts and consequently fall on this stone, they shall be broken. That is, in this life. They may chart the course of their lives without Christ, but be certain of this, the whole being degenerates until manhood becomes Satan-like and the soul is lost by his lack of faith. Now, we might call this a passive consequence, but the kind that happens when someone falls on the fact that Christ is the cornerstone. But there are active consequences. He says here in this verse, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it shall grind them to powder. That's a second picture that we're given here. All this, all, it's as though the stone takes wings and finds its target and it falls. It leaves the one in its path destroyed. You know, there are various places where you travel around the country, you find warning signs. Beware of falling fro- rocks. And so you might hold your breath and you might diligently watch the road and you're careful as you drive along the side of a rock formation. Make sure that nothing is sliding down. And our imagination may run uh, off with us sometimes and we might consider, what would it be like for one of them giant rocks to fall near us? Or upon us? But the scene here in our text is not so imprecise. It's not just kind of a what-if Perchance, the stone here takes aim by reason of unbelief and rejection. And it falls on those rejecting him. And then what happens? This judgment is sure. As we close this morning, look at verse 45 and verse 46. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard these, his parables, they perceived that he spake of them, But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. And as you can see, as we have already noted in this message, this is not a popular welcome message by those Jesus was speaking to. There's a sense that those who fall on the facts of Christ are broken to pieces can be made whole again by his redemptive love. And all who come to Christ are broken They're broken on the realities of this mighty, omnipotent Christ, but those who reject Him, finally and ultimately, there's another story, they will be sought out and there will be no remedy for that eternal judgment. I wonder this morning, how have you received this message? Is Jesus Christ your cornerstone this morning? Is everything in your life dependent upon this sure foundation that does everything you do and say? Does everything you do and say pivot on this cornerstone? Is your life built on it? Is it marvelous in your eyes this morning? Do you stand amazed at the presence 
of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone given by the Father for sinners such as us. And I trust that you'll build your life upon Him. Stake your eternity upon His death and His resurrection. Let Him build you up as a holy temple and worship Him now and forever. Let's pray.